Listen to the word of the Lord from 2 Timothy chapter 4. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me. How would you have finished this sentence if you were writing it? The crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. This is the word of the Lord. To all who have longed for his appearing. This hopefully brief talk is about the second coming of Jesus. The blessing is not for those who predict the Lord's coming. The blessing is not for those who are prepared with food, stock, you know, food in, their, in their little shelter. The blessing is not for those who write books about. The blessing is not even for those who believe in. The blessing is for those who love, who love the Lord's appearing. Not going to lie, when I was a young Christian, the idea of loving the Lord's appearing felt foreign to me. In youth group, we went through a, an, a book on, like a book, I, I guess it's not book on tape, it's book on CD series where we listened to these commentaries about the book of Revelation. And honestly, it made me not want to read the book of Revelation not because of what the Bible said, but because of what, how they dramatized it and pointed it at this is China, this is Russia, this is the United States. These are the tanks, these are the guns, these are the Scud missiles, these are the bombs, these are the viral attacks. Ooh. And the goal of the youth group agenda seemed to be to get everyone completely freaked out about the end of the world and all the chaos and financial instability and wars and judgments of God so that they could use the fear, the fear, the excitement, the drama, the Armageddon, the Independence Day Will Smith. They, they wanted, I, it seemed to me, first off, it, it, it seemed like we were not appealing to the beauty of Jesus at the center of the gospel to get kids committed. We were appealing to people's fear of the Russians and the Chinese and a nuclear holocaust and the Antichrist putting his mark on people. Fear to get you to make sure you stepped across. I am, what do I have to do? What do I have to do? I haven't seen anyone fall in love with God motivated by fear. I've seen people get religious motivated by fear. I've seen people get passionate about 
rallying to a cause motivated by fear. Crowds are easily motivated by fear. And then fear motivates crowds into unity, and then they decide who the person is who needs to die, or the group is that needs to die so that they don't have to be afraid anymore. But what I haven't seen is people fall in love with the beauty of God in the face of Jesus. And so what happened to me as I experienced that use of end times theology was I kind of wanted nothing to do with it. Then, right about the same time, the guy who was discipling me was asked to come talk to a Bible study because, I don't know if some of you will even know this, you younger ones, they told us around about 1998 and 1999 that there was a glitch in all the computer systems that the banks and the electrical power grid and everything else was based on. There was a glitch in it, and when those clocks struck past 1999 and they switched over to 2000, that the whole system was going to crash, the banks were going to have nobody's money, and chaos was going to ensue, and war was going to break out, and what are we going to do? It's the end of the freaking world. And so my friend Jim was asked to come share a Bible study to scared Christians to try to assure them that it's going to be okay. And I remember sitting there listening to these otherwise seemingly rational, reasonable people lose their minds. And he had to calm them down for a fear that they decided to get themselves into because they listened to morons, fear-mongering, book-selling Christian morons. If you want to make money off of the church, write about end-time stuff. It sells, baby. If it bleeds, it leads. It's very unhealthy, and it's very popular, and it always will be. It put a bad taste in my mouth. And then, uh, before that, 1988, I remember laying awake, wide awake at night, talking to my cousin in Ohio. There was a book that came out that said, 88 reasons Jesus is going to return in 1988. I'm going to give you a spoiler, guys. It didn't happen. I mean, if it did, then Jesus is definitely not who I thought he was. And his arrival wasn't that big of a fuss, and no one seems to have noticed. But I remember laying awake in my bed at my cousin's house in Ohio. Troy. Troy, me and Troy and somebody else, we were just wide awake. I remember the, the, the anticipation, the excitement. Because the, kids like that stuff. It's like, it's like if you found out there was going to be a dinosaur that rolled through your town in a few weeks. That'd be exciting to an eight-year-old kid. You know what I'm I wasn't eight, you know, I was ten. Oh, man, this is going to be awesome. Oh, it's going to be so cool to watch Jesus whoop up on the fools. Oh. He's going to be like, uh, and then they're going to just like vaporize. Oh. Little boys have a different vision of Jesus, I think. Jesus doesn't just walk on the water. He water skis barefoot on the water and does backflips and stuff. The preacher who's like, and then Jesus on the third day, he went down to the devil and he did a backflip over the devil and he snatched them keys out and he whacked them in the head and he did a karate chop. And I'm like, that's what I'm talking about. But we're just wide awake. It's like we're supposed to be asleep a long time ago. But who can sleep when the world's about to end? Are you, are you catching what I'm saying? Yes. And then it didn't happen, and the Y2K thing didn't happen. And then a couple more things 
stirred up and here we go, it's the end and oh, look at those prices, look at those earthquakes, look at those wars, look at those famines, look at those things. Jesus said to look out for those things, look at those false messiahs, look at those religious movements. Everything looks like he said it was gonna look. And then I remember being a young Christian in missions and one day me and my buddy Jeremy found a, 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 an evangelism tract, T-R-A-C-T, but you don't pronounce it as tract. I only did that for y'all. They call it a track. I don't know why. You're supposed to go out and hand them to people so that you don't have to feel as guilty for the fact that you feel you're going to heaven and they're all going to hell. You can't do nothing, so rather than talk to them and love them, which is way hard, I'll hand them a thing and run away. Way easier. And, uh, and it, by the way, some people get led to the Lord by tracts. Joel, who was here last week with his wife Heidi, he read a tract, prayed the prayer at the end, and genuinely was born again. So I can, I can say, well, that's not the ideal way, but the Lord uses all sorts of ways to reach people because he's that sort of guy. Yep. He's not a guy. That was irreverent. Let me try that sentence again because he's that sort of God. Whew, that was a little better. We'll try harder. So I find this tract, and I open it up, and it's like the more I open it, the more it opens. And instead of saying things like, do you need God? Is there something missing in your life? Did you know God loves you? None of that. None of that. You know what it says? It's like charts and graphs and lines and squiggles and connections. And this is Russia and this is China and this is going to happen with the economy. And it's all this complicated old New Testament references with current events in the most complicated graph of human history I've ever seen. And it was like a thorough eschatological map of history and the end of the world and the unfolding of the events in what order with dates when you could expect to see them happen. And then at the end, it was like a, you know, a brief little invite Jesus into your heart prayer. I'm telling you what, guys, I'm not exaggerating. I laughed so hard I cried and fell on the ground crying, laughing so hard at the absurdity that this was going to lead anyone to Jesus at all. Because when I read it, and I love Jesus, that made me want to not attend whatever groups this person is involved in at all. It was craziness. The certainty over things the Lord told us. Clearly, we were not supposed to know. And even he didn't know. What I'm trying to say is, for those kinds of reasons, I deliberately didn't take any classes in college and seminary on the book of Revelation. Which was a bad idea, by the way. If it's a hard-to-interpret book, shouldn't you have help reading it correctly? But I avoided it for the obvious reason that I had had very bad, irresponsible, immature, carnal views on the end times presented to me first, which put a bad taste in my mouth. Are you with me so far? Yes. Yes. In seminary, I heard a fantastic chapel talk, a two-part talk by a guy named Mark, and I don't remember his last name. So thanks, Mark, wherever you are. It was a different Mark, but you can get partial credit just for being attractive. He did a two-part sermon, sort of cut the sermon in half, 
and divide it into two days. Part one, surely I am with you always. I am with you always. The presence of Jesus. The presence of Jesus. No matter where you go, he's with you. To the ends of the earth, as you do his will, he's with you. He's with you. He's with you. He's with you. A whole sermon on just the sweetness of the presence of Jesus. Part two, the poor you'll always have with me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. The absence of Jesus. I'm leaving. The absence of Jesus. You would think that's a discouraging sermon. Of the two sermons, that's the one I remember the most. That Jesus told us, there's a time when I'm going away. You won't have me. Talking about fasting, he says during his earthly ministry, when his disciples were like, why why don't y'all, John's disciples, why don't y'all fast? And he says, how can they fast while they have me with them? When the bridegroom goes away, then they'll fast. That's now, by the way, guys. Now is the season when the bridegroom has gone away. We're in between his first coming and his second coming. We're in the season when Jesus said we're going to fast. Fasting is a way of saying to God, I am not okay with the present circumstances. I need heaven to intervene and do on earth what I, don't, what I can't do, what we can't do. You don't fast when the bridegroom is with you. We'll feast when the bridegroom returns. We won't fast because everything we would be fasting for is going to come with him when he arrives. So sermon one, Mark, whoever he is, said the presence of Jesus. Sermon two, contradict, opposite. You will not always have me with you. And he talked about how his faith in the second coming was lost through all the doctrinal detailed study and analysis to try to get to the bottom of the right biblical teaching. When I first came here, I was teaching a members class and June Gonzalez said, we were supposed to be talking about like faith, repentance, baptism, Bible, love, God is love, we can love Simple stuff, because that's what you do in membership class. And he pulls out this question. Tim, how would you interpret Revelation chapter 20, verse 3? And I said, which says, what now? And I look at it, and it says, and then the beast is unleashed from a pit, and he's allowed to roam around for seven years, and then this is going to happen. And I look back at him, and I go, give me a week? (laughs) I ain't take no classes on this. I thought, give me a week, I'll get to the bottom of this. That's funny, you should laugh. You can't get to the bottom of Christian eschatology in one week. You can't get to the bottom of Christian eschatology if you read a thousand pages. In fact, the more you read, the more you'll say, huh? So what I discovered in one week of serious study was that there's basically three major views, but more like five major views in the church. And I'm not talking about There's the conservative view and the liberal view and then the crazy person view that I hold. Yeah, I know that's typically how I present things. There's the liberal view and the conservative view and then the crazy Tim Miller view. 
No, it wasn't like that. It was like these were people who were all conservative. They all loved the Bible. They all believed Jesus was Lord. They all believed in the inerrancy of Scripture. And they all believed Jesus was coming again. And they disagreed about how it was going to happen and when it was going to happen. But there were three major camps. And I came back to him instead of going, here's the answer. I basically said, I've studied it, so now I'm less sure about what I believe. I'm... I'm I'm happy to discover that believers all know the Lord will return. But how, when, what does it look like? How will it work? Very much a spread full of options, and they all make perfect sense when you read them until the next one says his thing, and then you're like, well, no, that makes better sense. Are you, are you hearing what I'm saying? So this dude said, Mark, the Mark guy, he said he kind of lost his faith in the second coming by studying the doctrine of it. But then the weirdest thing happened. And what he said is what happened to me. Just by relationship with Jesus, the real being who speaks and breathes and empowers and loves and comforts and guides and forgives and assures, by relationship with Jesus... All of a sudden, he realized he was aching for Jesus to come back. And his faith in the Lord's return didn't happen by studying eschatology. And it didn't have to do with predictions. It didn't even have to do with doctrines. It didn't have to do with exegeting Matthew 23 and Matthew 24 and 2 Thessalonians. It, it didn't have to do with any of that. It had to do with being in love. And when you're in love, absence from the beloved is painful. Amen. And it had to do with simple things like the Lord said he was coming again. The Lord said he wasn't going to leave us as orphans. He said he would come again and he would take us to be with him where he is and that we and him would live together forever. It said in Revelation 22 that God is going to make his dwelling on earth with people and he'll be our God and we'll be his people and he'll wipe every tear from our eye and there's going to be no more sin, no more cancer, no more death and when that happens, it will finally be made right. And then it says, if the book of Revelation finishes by saying, the spirit and the bride say, what? Come, come, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who is thirsty come and drink freely of the water of life. Behold, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me and I will repay everyone according to their deeds. Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Through relationship with Jesus, his faith in the second coming, not a doctrine, not a theory, not a prediction, but a longing for the one whom he knows, who knows him, a longing to see him face to face, like 1 Corinthians 13 says, now we know in part, then we will know fully. When? I have friends who think that the, when we know fully means we didn't have the Bible, but but. But then the Bible was completed, and then we knew fully. And I'm like, nonsense, stop it. And that's their argument, by the way, against praying in tongues and prophecy today. Those gifts stopped once we had a Bible, because the perfect has come, and that's when the imperfect is going away. And I just go, are you kidding me right now? Does this look perfect to you? 
You think, are you perfect right now? I'm pretty sure you need more Jesus, and so do I. I'm banking on the perfect he's talking about is the restoration of all things at the arrival of Jesus in power and authority, where Philippians says, by the power that enables Jesus to bring everything under his control, he'll speak, and his word will recreate heaven and earth just like at the beginning when there was nothing but chaos, and God said, and creation snapped into obedience and said, yes, sir. And the only part of creation that doesn't do that is a few angels and some of us. (laughs) Oh, that's not funny. I'm just saying rocks do obey better, you know. And so Mark, this dude in seminary whose faith came back, once it came back, he would walk on campus on a cloudy day. Jesus said, I'm coming on the what? On the clouds of heaven with the angels and with great glory. And he says his arrival will be seen from the east to the west. You're not going to miss it. So Mark walks on campus where he teaches in seminary. And he sees the cloudy day. And he says, it's a beautiful day. Well, that's a different perspective on the weather. <laughs> I like the sun, Mark. Ah, I don't need no sun. I need the sun. Say, Mark, come on. Stop with the preacher puns. And other, other professors would hear him. Look at the cloud. It's a beautiful day. And you know how people can't abide seeing someone truly happy? Like if you're online and you're like, this is a good donut. Somebody's going to be like, oh, it's not gluten-free. You're going to die. It's not gluten-free. My mom makes better donuts. Here's a song I wrote. Oh, yeah, I could make it better. Come here. We'll collaborate. Just let a man have nice things. So he walks on campus. It's a beautiful day. Sees the clouds. Another professor walks up to him. Probably the 16th time he's heard this, so it's piled up in irritation. Because you know how that works. Irritation piles up until finally one day you're like, I'm going to say it. So the guy says, it can't be cloudy everywhere on planet Earth the day Jesus comes. That's meteorologically incorrect. (laughs) And you know what Mark said back? Classic response. Please use this. This is hilarious. He goes, people who are in love don't say such things. (laughs) That's the right answer, by the way. It's a beautiful day. It can't be cloudy everywhere when Jesus comes back. People who are in love don't say such things. Then he was having an argument with one of his other friends who's a Lutheran. And I don't know if you know this, but Catholics believe that in the Lord's Supper, when the priest says the words, this is my body, and they ring the bell, the reason they're ringing the bell is to notify the people in the room that the miracle has just happened that has transformed the bread into literally the body of Jesus and the juice, they don't use juice, they use wine, the wine literally into the blood of Jesus. Lutherans are very similar, only they don't believe it's literally physically changed. They believe in what they call the real presence. So one of his Lutheran buddies says, how can you talk about the absence of Jesus? He's with us in the supper. Come on, Mark, it's bad theology. And Mark says, you know what? I'll bet when he comes on the clouds and I find myself floating up into the air 
and embracing him in his arms, and he takes me and holds me real tight and looks me deep in my optic nerves, I'll probably say, you're right, this is just like taking communion. <laughs> Give me a break. Communion is good. Face to face with Jesus is better. Paul says the absence and the presence of Jesus work like this. Not only so, Romans 8, 23, not only so does the creation groan, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, which is the redemption of our bodies. When Jesus comes back, it says he'll transform everything. And we will have glorified bodies like his. He's the firstborn from, from the dead. And when he comes back, our bodies will be transformed like his so that we can no longer die. Amen. Yes. And that's called the redemption of our bodies. This body dies. That's annoying. Yeah. Do you guys, yeah. have you cried lately about your mortality? Yeah. You're allowed to. I did the other day just because I'm mortal. Literally sat in my office just crying that I'm going to die. Yeah. I like life. It's, death is stupid, guys. And the good thing, one of the good things about Christianity is it doesn't have to, I don't have to make peace with death. Everybody else in the whole world is trying to make peace with death. Well, I guess it's the other next area. It's a beautiful, it's a wheel of life. You take your turn. I have my young season and I have the, then I go into the autumn of my life and then I go to the winter of my life and then I die and pass away. And then the kids have their romp in the sun. And I'm like, that's stupid. I hate that. It's a train that won't stop. So annoying. So sad. Watching my family get old. Watching my friends get old. Watching tragedy take them. So annoying. And annoying is putting it extremely mildly, isn't it? And we're supposed to eagerly. 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 Long. For this whole system to be done. But here's the thing. It's not just selfishness motivating our hope. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like there is a version of Christianity that says, hey, you need forgiveness of sins. Jesus is that for you. Hey, you want to live forever in heaven? Hey, Jesus has that for you. Hey, you want help? Oh, he'll help you stop sinning. He'll make this better and that better and everything better. And there's a way to present it that leaves me selfish at the center of my heart as the point of my whole life. Now I've just taken my sin, my selfishness, and my slavery to selfishness, which is the root of sin, all sin, and I've just made it religious. That breaks when I actually fall in love with him for his beauty, his worth, his value. And I'll, whatever, I want more of you, even at great cost to me. Whatever I have to pay to get more of you, whatever I have to give up to get more of you, it's about your worth, it's about your value, it's about who you are, it's about what you want, God. And this longing for the second coming is not just a world weariness of just can't take anymore. I really just wish Jesus would come back because I'm sick of taxes and the liberals or whatever happened. My knees hurt. You know, the kids are acting squirrely and culture keeps shifting and I just can't keep up. Can we go back to the 80s? Yeah. Nostalgia is a neat idea, isn't it? 
longing for a time that you guys didn't even live in, and yet you long for it. What's up with that? Nostalgia, a yearning for a place in time either you had or didn't have, but it was somehow speaking to you. Something good was there. Something fun was there. And I think Christians are the original nostalgic people, longing for a past that echoes, let me flip that, longing for a future that bears echoes of a past, neither of which have we ever tasted ourselves, but the knowledge is in us from our ancestors. I don't know if you understood anything I just said. We inherit a sense of Eden and face-to-face with God. Because we're Adam and Eve's children. We're nostalgic for a home we were made for and they enjoyed. And heaven will be Eden plus more. I said it was going to be short, so let me try to make it short. Let me ask another question. How can joy make you sad? Peter says that though you haven't seen Jesus, you're nostalgic for him. And you believe in him, and you know him, and you love him. You love Jesus, even though you ain't seen Jesus. Just like y'all ain't seen the 80s and seem to be obsessed with it. I'm exaggerating. And you rejoice with a glorious and inexpressible joy, for you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It's 1 Peter 1. How can joy, glorious and inexpressible, make you sad? I'm going to argue that almost all joy makes you a little sad because joy is not just a feeling of enjoying what you have. Joy is a delighting in something else that's outside of you that you might not have fully and the more joy you feel over the thing, the more pain is there if you don't currently possess the thing. I feel like I'm saying deep things today and I don't know if I'm saying I'm clear, so I'll just move forward. Clive Staples Lewis, C.S. Lewis, whose friends affectionately called him Jack. Jack Lewis says, a baby feels hunger because there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim because there's such a thing as water. People feel sexual desire because there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience on earth can satisfy the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. In none of my earth, if none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, it doesn't prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it and suggest the real thing. And if that's so... I must take care, on the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for earthly blessings, and on the other, to never mistake them for the something else that they are an echo or a mirage of. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find here on earth till after death, and I would say, or at his return, I'm adding. I must make it the main objective of my life to press on to that country and help others do the same. See, there's something in what Lewis is saying that hits at the core of what I think is the real blessed hope. 
not a series of complicated charts and graphs about what Russia and China and Scud missiles are doing, but a longing for home and an expectation that Jesus will come. And when he comes, I won't just get him, I'll get everything else his way. Amen. And that means his will, which is the best news ever. Some people say, Tim, it can't happen yet. Tim, the second coming can't happen yet. It cannot happen yet because he said that this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the ends of the earth and then the end will come. And, and even though geographically we've preached it to the ends of the earth, we haven't yet reached indigenously every language, people, group, ethnicity on earth yet. We're getting closer but we're not there yet. Therefore, Tim, relax. You can look at the cloudy day all you want, but he's not coming till the work's done. So just chill. We can know for a fact he's not coming yet. Relax. I say, I actually really like what you're saying, but I disagree. Amen. Then they could say, and they have said, Tim, He's not going to come back yet because Ephesians is clear. Jesus is returning for a mature, unified, spotless bride. Not a divided, doctrinally and morally haggard, immature baby whining about not getting her way, chasing after poisonous things and eating dirt, which is what a lot of us are doing now. Therefore, we're not ready. He's not coming. Chill. We got probably 300 more generations, Tim, until we're even close to ready. And to that I say, I like what you're saying. You're right. You're right. The church will be unified and mature and walking in the spirit and no longer tossed to and fro by every cunning crafting agenda of humans trying to lead us astray. We will be strong and mature and holy and unified at his return. But, but... Haven't you then crossed the line from assuming that you're the one who gets to decide when that happens and how it looks? Haven't you filled in some blanks with your certainty and then taken away all the tension in Jesus' sayings where he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who entrusted his work to these other people who are stewards, then he goes away for a time, and then he comes back when they least expect it, and if he finds them faithful, they get a reward, but most of them are caught by surprise. It'll, the Son of Man, will, it'll be like just like in the days of Noah. People were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, doing business deals, and then all of a sudden, boom, time's up, and they didn't expect it. That's how it's going to be when the Son of Man comes back, according to Jesus. He says, be ready, because if you knew what time a thief was going to break into your house, you wouldn't, you would, you'd be awake, you'd be ready, you'd have the ch ch sitting in the lazy boy going, how you doing, huh? Huh? What you doing? Huh? What do you think? What are you talking about? No, come on, move on, move on. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Unless you're a Mennonite, and then I guess you would just let him take your things. But don't worry, Rusty's got it. He's got you covered, baby. And Jesus says in the same way that if you knew the time the thief was going to break in, you would not be taken by surprise. If you knew the time, if you knew the exact year even the Son of Man was going to come, you'd be on high alert that year. But it's not going to be that way. 
And so I, even though I believe, yes, the world must be evangelized. And by evangelized, I don't just mean get them a message. I mean get them a godly church full of fruit in that culture. That's evangelized. Evangelized doesn't mean print Bibles to the ends of the earth. It means make disciples to the ends of the earth. I believe that. I also believe we can speed the Lord's coming by our faithfulness. That's right out of the Bible too. I also believe, okay, you get what I'm saying. I think those were good objections. But I think we're supposed to wake up in the morning and look at the clouds and go with our heart almost skipping a beat. Is it, is it today, Lord? Yes. yes. Oh, what if it would be today? And actually imagine him coming on the clouds and the whole thing being ooh, unfolding. We're supposed to imagine that. We're supposed to want that. We're supposed to expect that. The Mark dude that I was talking about, he said, I bet you Paul, when his head was on the chopping block, waiting for the ax to fall, right? Hands bound behind his back, bent over. I bet he was looking up at the clouds going, is it now, Lord? What a vivid picture. In seminary, I remember I said, we're having this conversation in school because sometimes you have real conversations and in the middle of class, we're having this conversation. Is it now? Is it now? And I said, you know, we've been reading all these 2,000 years of church theology and I've noticed every single generation looked around and said, oh, come on. It's, we probably have two more months at max. The church fathers said it. The medieval church said it. The reformers said it. Everybody was saying it. The whole church, throughout all history, thought they were the last generation. Nobody planned on having grandkids. <laughs> they were all kind of shocked. You mean you guys get to be? We didn't expect you to get to be. We thought we were the apex of society. And another kid spoke up and he said, you're right, Tim, like, yeah, every generation seems to look around, see the words of Jesus in Matthew 23 and 24 and go, yeah, it looks pretty ripe for harvest to me. And he said, it feels to me that the Holy Spirit intentionally misleads each generation in terms of their predictions with a right and godly yearning for Jesus. Are you hearing what he just said? Yeah. That kid was right. Yeah. The Holy Spirit causes a right and godly yearning for Jesus' return that's so strong that every generation has wrongly predicted it had to be now. Yeah. So we are, it's a forgivable error because it's rooted in a right affection. So here's what I would like to say to some of the youngins listening to my voice. Uh, the point of the blessed hope is not panic, it's not fear, it's not drama. It's just the fact that Jesus, if he's really real, if he's really the Jesus of the Bible, look how cute that is, that's adorable. If he's really real, then we want him to come back. Oh, drop it and <laughs> drop the truck and go. Drop it and go. Jacob, he was fine. He wasn't bothering anybody. And I don't, I don't understand the blessed hope as a source of fear. I don't relate to it as a source of fear. 
So if you're someone who's like, man, I'm scared of that. I don't want any of that to happen. I hope it happens not in my generation. I, I would say that Bob Marley's song, Three Little Birds, is like, that's my, that's my second coming song. Do I need to sing that for you to know what that song is? Don't worry about a thing because every little thing gonna be alright. Singing, don't worry about a thing because every little thing gonna be alright. That song is on point. No matter how bleak it looks, no matter how hopeless it looks, and I love the fact that the movie I Am Legend, like a post-apocalyptic zombie thriller, everyone's dead except Will Smith. <laughs> Mostly. Not fully. And that's his favorite song the whole time. And it just keeps playing. Because no matter how bleak the story looks, every little thing gonna be alright. Yep. Love that. That was smart. I'm gonna finish with a Pierce Pettis song. Prayer team can come forward. Just going to read these lyrics for you. Pierce Pettis, this song is written to Jesus saying, Come home. I remember how you loved this holy city in the spring, fresh cut flowers in the market, children running in the street, but it's changed so much. I don't think you'd recognize a thing. Now it's just a red light district and an international disgrace. Come home. Come home. You've been gone so long. Amen. Come home. Amen. Yes. Papers and petitions have been piling at the door, nailed to the door. He's a Catholic. He's referring to the uh, Reformation. Thieves break in at night. They say you won't be back no more. And your wife is so lethargic, so scattered, and so frail. And the child who's never known you just stands at the wall and wails, Come home. Come home. You've been gone so long. Come home. Yellow ribbons round the olive trees you planted in the park. Only the brave or foolish ever walk there after dark. And all around the world a table's set. And there's an empty place. And still we go through the motions, breaking bread and saying grace. But the ones you left to run your business ran it right into the ground, each one a law unto himself, leading followers around. And in the babble of the streets, amidst the jostling of the crowd, on every side, like helpless sheep, it makes me want to cry aloud. Come home. Come home. You've been gone so long. Come home. The crown of life, which the Lord Jesus will give to me, and not all, only to me, but also to all who love his appearing. Let's get this doctrine. Let's get it back. Let's make it ours. Let's make it alive again. It matters. Real quick, um, testimony. Um, 
Last week, uh, um, Mary was dealing with a shoulder issue, and Rusty went back and prayed for her. And by that Sunday evening, her, her shoulder was completely, completely better. Um, so, uh, but anybody that's got a thigh issue, all service this afternoon, this morning, my thigh has been on fire. So if that's anybody in here, I want to pray for you. Um, and two, if you feel like you've been far away from home and that far away from Jesus or just far away from his presence and his spirit, we're here today to pray for you. So, um, you know, so that's what that's what I got for you. So, OK. Brody, do you mind coming up and letting Brady? Did I say Brody? Sorry. I knew it was Brady. I'm sorry. Can you come up? <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> Can you come over here with Stan and Danielle and John and let them pray over you? I just think it's awesome. I wish Danny was here too because baptism is a really, really big thing. So I think Stan might have a word for you. Maybe Danielle. <laughs> um, and then what Tim was reading in 2 Timothy 4, I really love, I'm going to have it turn there, that Paul said, I, I've kept my heart full of faith. And you know what? When we keep our hearts full of faith, fear can't get in, can it? doubt and unbelief none of those things can get in the deception of the enemy can't get in but it's only when our hearts are full of faith and so if you're struggling in that area um, come up let us pray for you let's give you a word of encouragement um, share with you if you are struggling with healing physically or mentally emotionally um, Alex is here he, he does carry a healing anointing here's the thing you got to know about Alex and a lot of us probably do you, you know the places in the Bible where it says Jesus was filled with compassion I see it operate when he is filled with compassion and so if you come up for healing with Alex, just tell him a little bit of your, just a little bit, ten, short attention span, um, a little bit of your story, because that helps, doesn't it, when you kind of feel what other people are feeling. <laughs> He's like, why are you talking, Mom? Um, or you can get it uh, in line with these guys when they're done with Brady. Uh, if you have not made Jesus your Lord and Savior, Or you did, and you've just gotten away from him for whatever reason, no, no shame involved, then please come up and talk to Carl and Sue. Man, that is, that's, that's Carl's heart. And he doesn't want to, Carl and Rusty, I know their hearts. Like they, they don't want anybody to be without Jesus. So if that's you, just come on up and see them, okay? Um, there is a potluck today. I know that was announced. Uh, if you forgot to bring food, 
there tends to be plenty of food. <laughs> so I'm just gonna um, bless the meal and then you all, whoever needs to come up, up and whoever is ready to go, you can go. So Father, just thank you so much. Thank you for your uh, presence here. Thank you for your love. Um, we pray for the meal. We pray that there's just great uh, connections made and a lot of wonder really wonderful fellowship in Jesus' name, amen.